a clever way to credit one of the most joyful giants of jazz. A legendary hip-hop alias inspired by the art of war. And a mind-bending backstory for a country star's pseudonym. You're listening to Themes and Variation. Themes and Variation is a podcast about music and perspectives brought to you by the online music school Soundfly. I'm your host, Carter Lee. Hey there, folks. Another Themes and Variation coming at you. I have wanted to do this episode since the beginning of the podcast. Today, we are breaking down alter ego songs. We've got three tracks for you that for a variety of reasons, the artist decided to try on a totally different musical identity to varying degrees of success. And joining me for this deep dive into these musical aliases is, of course, my frequent co-host, Mahaya Lee, and our dear friend and co-worker here at Soundfly, Jeremy Young. You might remember Jeremy for his appearance on this very podcast over a year ago when we broke down some cover songs. He's also a fantastic musician as one-third of the experimental trio Sontag Shogun. He's also the editor-in-chief of the Soundfly blog Flypaper, and he's a blast to hang with and chat music. He's, you know, just perfect for this episode as we're breaking down three very unique tracks. And before we dive into some music, I want to remind you to be sure to check out soundfly.com. If you are a musician, if you're a little curious about getting better at understanding and making music, we've got courses for you. We've got everything from production to mixing to harmony to theory, songwriting and beat making. And I could go on and on and be sure to check out some of the courses we've done with artists like Kimbra, RJD2 and Kiefer. And our next course will drop in about a week's time with a very exciting artist. I'll have more information for you on that soon. It'll be exclusive to soundfly.com. Of course, use the discount code themes to take 20% off a monthly or annual subscription. And now turning our attention back to this episode, we get into all kinds of things like the unique career trajectory of Lewis Smith, how the art of war influenced an incredible hip-hop record, and we break down everything you could possibly want to know about one of the wildest career choices in the history of music. So without further ado, let's get into the episode, Alter Ego Songs. All right, folks, another themes and variation coming at you. Joining me, of course, frequent co-host, Mahalia. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, Carter. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, I've wanted to do this episode for quite a while. I Uh, I have a track I'm very excited to talk about. And of course, I'm doing great because returning to themes and variation, Mr. Jeremy Young. Jeremy, how are you doing? Boo, boo, boo. Yeah. I, I, okay. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm good. I did want to mention one thing, which is that the only other episode of Themes and Variations that, I, variation that I've been on was about covers. Yeah. And now this one is about alter egos. And it's kind of yeah. like, are you trying to tell me that I'm like hiding behind some kind of an identity? <laughs> I, I honestly, I think this episode is going to be a little funnier than than other ones i think hilarity will ensue on some of these and i think that uh you're perfect 
for for the vibe that we're going to be putting down. All right, I'll bring out the gags. Alter Ego songs. Very stoked to get into this with you. Are there any songs, knowing what you guys selected for this episode, mm-hmm. any songs that you were on your mind for it that you decided not to go with for one reason or another? I came so close to doing the Five for Fighting song Superman just because that was the that was the only way I could think of to interpret this theme in a little bit of a different direction. I'm more than a bird, I'm more than a plane, I'm more than some pretty face beside a train, and it's not easy to be. I didn't realize that was a an alter ego. I mean, it, it sort of is, right? Because it's a song from the perspective of, like, the vulnerable part of Superman, which isn't Clark Kent, but, like, Clark Kent's oh, the human okay. side of Superman. Oh, that's, that's like occupying a character. Yeah, yeah, it's a persona for sure, but it was literally the alter ego. Like, Superman, when you talk about alter egos, that's the example you use. I can only, I, I can hear that song now, but you had to refresh my memory. I can only think of that Kryptonite song. Is that, is that Three Doors yeah, Down or something? Like, it, it, uh, <laughs> Wait, what God. about Our Lady Peace? Wasn't, oh, wasn't that the one? Is that another Superman, Superman song? dead? You kidding? Oh, yeah. Why? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we do a whole episode yeah. of Superman songs. Superman's dead. That track just Classic absolutely like <laughs> was a lock in the much music top 30 every week, always. Uh, Superman, for sure. Uh, Jeremy, sorry. Uh, tracks that you considered that you didn't end up going with. Not tracks, um, artists, but... Uh, mm. It was really hard to pull myself away from Prince as mm. Camille. Prince's uh, very short-lived alter ego that never actually saw the light of day on a release, except for some of the tracks got picked up and put on another release. But in the mid-'80s, Prince had a, had a sort of alter ego named Camille, uh, sort of gender-fluid, androgynous kind of thing, where he pitched his vocals up an octave to sound more feminine um, <laughs> and recorded an entire album that got shelved. I mean, I feel like there's like bootlegs out there that you can find, but um, I don't want to. Alter egos were big I mean, in the 80s. Like, I, I thought about yeah. a lot of David Bowie yes. stuff. Yeah, of course, Bowie. Yeah. They were. I think there's like a def- definition of what an alter ego is, especially when an artist like actually comes out and says like, or not says, but kind of performs as this other uh, other personality. But there's kind of a weird fuzzy line between that and there and it just being sort of a conceptual character that the artist occupies, mm. of which there's a lot. Yeah. Like if you really go back and you listen to like some of the most creative and and um out there kind of like pop music, I mean everybody's occupying some kind of a character. Like the weekend yep. the last like couple of albums of his are like he's sort of in this different persona that he's trying to do so mm-hmm. yeah there, there's like a lot of like ways that this could have gotten but i, I mean I'm sergeant pepper sure that, right like i feel like that's the other one you think yeah, totally egos yeah there's a lot of ways this could have gone let's get into some music i i'm dying to listen to these tracks with you guys uh well, we've got our first selection of the episode which was mahea's pick <laughs> Blistering. Mejia, what do we have the pleasure of listening to? We are listening to, and I did have to like look up YouTube videos to figure out how to pronounce this because it's, I'm sure there's people who would disagree with me, but this is a lesser known jazz track called mm-hmm. Andy, spelled A-N-D-E by uh, Lewis Smith. There's a feature that we didn't get to quite yet, um, 
from somebody who is credited as Buckshot LaFunk. <laughs> Sick. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but before we get into Buckshot LaFunk, the guy that, that opens this track, Tommy Flanagan. Yeah. Like, we got to talk about Tommy Flanagan because... Everyone on this track we should talk about, though. That's the problem. But yeah. The dude is such an incredible pianist and somebody that is so much better than I think is thought of in the history of jazz music because... A lot of people think of Tommy Flanagan as having potentially the worst jazz solo recorded of <laughs> all time as he plays the piano solo on Giant Steps. You think it's the worst? What I have jazz to solo? say, like given it's the not, circumstances, it's, not good. it's pretty good. <laughs> But that, but that's it's the point in the of the shadow of that, greatness. Yeah, it's the, true. The point is that band got that chart like thirty minutes before they recorded it, and it was probably one of the most harmonically advanced <laughs> tunes ever written. And Coltrane's like, "Let's just record it." All right, Tommy, you take. You're gonna take a solo on this, right? And it's it's very stilted. It's very. It's not very free flowing and everything. And like, but when he has time to, to check out the music he's an incredible piano player so the other thing about that story that i heard is that they got the charts and in their heads they all thought it was like a moderate tempo tune and then yeah, it got counted off and they hit record and it was like okay now we're in the other thing given that that is harmonically like the you know that's that's a huge milestone for jazz musicians as the pianist a harmonically challenging tune is a very different thing than for everyone else because like Yes, you could play a single note line, but you have the ability to play the other notes at the same time. And I don't know, you just have to think in more layers than everyone. You got to comp. You, exactly. you have to split your brain into, okay, I'm playing the changes and also I'm soloing on them and everything too. And it, it's not, the, the other thing too is like Coltrane sounds amazing on it because he's been shedding it 20 hours a day for like for months and months and he's learning how to play upside down and all around. But a lot of his solo on that is just playing like he'll play literally scalar stuff like one, two, three, four, five, straight up the scale, little pentatonic stuff. And he, yeah, and he is outlining the changes that he wrote. Like, so yeah, he set himself up to look great. Look, it's an incredible record. And, and it's just one of those things that like in jazz schools, like, oh, Tommy Flanagan. No, nah, he's a fantastic piano player. Hey, that's, that's my rant. So that's this my is, rant. this is the, the Tommy Flanagan retribution tour right now. Absolutely. <laughs> he was also though, he was Ella Fitzgerald's accompanist and music director for like a decade and stuff. Like, like guy did mm -hmm. fine. Not you know? bad. Um, guy but, did fine. But he is one of several people on this track in particular who were really known for their like dexterity, including, um, that being part of the legacy of the alter ego featured player that uh, comes in at about 2 minutes and 21 seconds. Carter, can you jump there for me? Should we let the cat out of the bag? You guys already know because I sent you the yeah, information. It's, it's Cannonball of Adderley. Course, of course, say who it is. <laughs> yes, it is Cannonball Adderley. Who's real From first? From Cannonball to buck, Buckshot. Julian. Julian. Julian, thank you. Um, one thing I learned is supposedly the nickname Cannonball is not the original nickname. His original nickname was Cannibal Adderley. Because Whoa. he had like a massive <laughs> appetite in his youth, and so his friends ca started calling him Cannibal. And it, I don't know if that's true. I I like it either way. <laughs> I 
I feel like they're better nicknames than cannibal for to <laughs> I know, right? To talk about somebody's appetite or weight. But cannonball yeah, is a definitely. cool nickname. Like that Cannonball, yeah. Yeah. Whether that's how it originated. Cannonball Lector. It, well. <laughs> it is made cooler by the understanding that like it wasn't originally cannonball, it was cannibal. And yeah. then like people very close to him that would call him cannonball maybe knowing that like actually his real name is like super dark (laughs) yeah but so he's one of those not that he's underrated because he's certainly not people celebrate him for sure but i think that because he did have a desire to you know make music accessible to his listener to listeners to an extent and Mm -hmm. allowed himself to like fall into the pop side of jazz He's not always somebody that like jazz heads gravitate towards being like huge Cannonball Adderley fans the way that they might with some other um, sax players, you know. Mm. Carter, you're scratching your chin in a way that says no. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not. just thinking, just I'm deciding if I agree with that or not. I think I agree with that. I think. Well, that's I think totally he's in fair, the. You know, he's he's in the canon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, his record, something else, I think, is probably the biggest thing that he did, right? Yeah. But but that was like pretty straight ahead like that wasn't too out there right so there's this era right right around the time when he moves to new york where there's like the kind of pop jazz that's ending up in musicals and movies and then there's all and then you also have like Mm. miles davis and people like that who are like doing something maybe a little more avant-garde and something that becomes um well i mean cool (laughs) it's hard to not say the word cool when you talk about miles davis's music right it was birth of Yeah, yeah exactly so but like like even when they play together you can hear how different they are as performers cannonball adderley's music exudes fun like even if you're not a jazz person it's fun to listen to him play yeah you hear so many notes but none of them seem wasted which is really rare usually when you hear something really busy it's like that's that's more notes than i needed to hear but i don't get that with him that's interesting it's like the bebop sound and somehow he's been able to kind of like graduate from a charlie parker sound right. to like more of a modern thing i don't know yeah yeah but, um, who he was compared to a lot right like i, yeah, I guess he even moved fair. to new york the year charlie parker died so people were expecting him to kind of be the successor and to an extent i guess he was but um just swoop all his gigs after <laughs> i guess the, the second <laughs> the second coming of bird so cannibal adderley is buckshot lafunk cannibal adderley <laughs> is buckshot lafunk I Should we get I feel lie? like that yeah that needs a little unfurling because yeah please in my brain please tell me you got some info <laughs> I there do. I have I have dirty. some info so it's a little bit of a um it's not the sort of thing that I think gets like a really thorough detailed history anywhere but there is a history of this so especially for some reason in jazz there's a tradition of contracted musicians using pseudonyms in order to play on each other's projects without yep. interference from labels and such. Oh, so this is how he got away with playing on this record. Um, some other people who did it, I have my list, hold on. Charlie Parker is credited on tracks as Charlie Chan. Eric Dolphy is credited on things as George Lane. Um, and my favorite, Joe Beam is credited as Tony Brazil. <laughs> oh my God. There's a club somewhere on the other side of the railroad tracks where all these guys are playing every night under, under their pseudonyms. But the name Buckshot LaFunk has since been repurposed by Branford Marsalis uh, when he started a, his project that blended jazz with hip hop and R&B. Um, I think it was in the 90s. Get, get 
But yeah, so he used the name Buckshot LaFunk, but spelled it differently. He spelled it more French. It's L-E-F-O-N-Q-U-E instead of La Funk. <laughs> um, wow. Funke. But, uh, Funke. Cannibal Adderley. <laughs> Buckshot LaFunk. Um, so are you trying Incredible. to sort of... Um, um, what's the word? Assuage or something? Like, are you trying to su- suggest that um, Cannibal Adderley... Okay, all right. So he played on this other dude's record, Lewis Smith. Yes, Lewis Smith. He's an interesting character as well. He actually, he, he did two albums and then took a job as a music teacher. But before that, like if yeah. you look at his early credits and stuff, he played on stages with everyone from like Dizzy Gillespie to um, Horace Silver. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah. So Cannonball could have just been could have just changed his name uh, in order to get out of some kind of a contract thing or whatever. But is but is there a world in which like he you know he sort of occupied this name in order to like become something else musically, like let it loose a little bit? Like, oh, do we hear that in the track? Is that I don't think we, we hear that. that. I think it sounds yeah, like I think this is purely contractually. Yeah, that's I I, to, I totally forgotten about that, Mahay. I'm glad that that you picked this track and and had uncovered that because yeah, it happened all the time. Mm-hmm. Like not even just the the folks at US. Like it was like you had an ironclad label agreement, which is similar now. But like you were playing on so many records, yeah. and I think it was a a, a lot of. Uh, the way like a lot of people made made their bread that year like you'd just be constantly playing on records and you couldn't like all these guys were leaders on their own so they couldn't maybe get out of their Mm -hmm. own i have seen it happen from a producer's perspective uh recently even too where this is kind of sad but like where the producer wanted the money to do the record but didn't want their name associated with the music because it wasn't something that they felt was a great fit for them mm. basically so it's like yeah i will take your money to produce your record right. but i won't put my actual name on it this isn't the kind of which is tough be known for. that's tough yeah but in this case i'm almost surprised that it was only cannonball adderley who had to find a way around it because the personnel on this track we already talked about tommy flanagan doug watkins is the bass player on this he was um one of the original members of the jazz messengers hmm, cool. probably Best known for playing on Sonny Rollins' saxophone Colossus when he was only 22 years old. Yeah. He also played bass for Mingus when Mingus decided he felt like playing piano. Would not want to be in that rehearsal space. He definitely got yelled <laughs> yeah, at a lot sure. in that band. Oh Especially God. if you're playing the bass. <laughs> Um, God. And then the drummer on this is Art Taylor. Lewis Smith, who, you know, it's his record. His playing on this is amazing. He's also the composer on the track. I think he'd be a good study for anybody working on their improv skills, particularly if you want to stretch your dexterity and virtuosity. I even saw a video of somebody playing his lines on a bass, and it was like beautiful and looked so Sick. challenging. Um, so that's my little spiel on uh, the, the history of Buckshot LaFunk. Still the only place for me that never rains in the sun. To live and die in LA, where every day we 
try to fatten our pockets Us niggas hustle for the cash so it's hard to knock Everybody got their own thing coming to chasing Worldwide through the hard times, worrying faces Shed tears as we bury niggas close to heart What was a friend now a ghost in the dark Cold part about it, nigga got smoked by a fiend Trying to floss on him, blind to a broken man's dream Alright, Jeremy What are we listening to, man? We're listening to To Live and Die in L.A. by Machiavelli, a.k.a. the Don Caluminati, a.k.a. Tupac. Released on November 5th, 1996. Less than two months after Tupac was shot and killed in Vegas. Crazy. And I think this is the first Tupac track on the podcast. Which is crazy to me that we've done this many episodes and it's the first one. But uh, leave yeah, it to man, me, where... guys. Leave it to me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it away. Where uh, where do you want to start with this this one? Okay, there's there's actually a lot. I, I think it's going to be harder to <laughs> rein it in. <laughs> yeah, to rein it in. So, all right, Machiavelli. This is the alias, the the alter ego of Tupac that he occupied in the recording of this album. And of course, we can't not talk about the rumors circulating <laughs> around uh, Tupac faking his own death, but I'll get yeah. to that later. Just a little bit about this album uh, and, and the track. Okay, so it was recorded o- uh, over the course of seven days in August. So it was recorded um, less than a month before he died. To Live and Die in LA is like a, is like a I think it's like a pretty typical Tupac track. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's really funky. It's kind of joyous. There's like a little bit of shade being thrown around. There's like some beefs being referenced and stuff. But it's like West Coast love. Yeah, it's like about West Coast, like like yeah, yeah love and and California love and stuff like that. But it 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 diverts from previous. Not not that Tupac wasn't writing music before about like gang violence and and uh, you know, racial societal issues and stuff like that, of course. But the the rest of this album. The album being called uh, The Don Caluminati, The Seven Day Theory. Um, the rest of this album is like dark, dude. Like, it's like, yeah. it's, it's dark and it's like aggressive and like noisy and intense. And pretty much the entire album is like venomous and vindictive. What do we have here now? You wanna ride or die? It's it's almost as like uh, all of the tracks are the point is just to like just throw as much crap on like everybody that Tupac feels like wronged him over the last couple of years. Pa- a partial sort of like navigation of that story is that in 1994, um, Tupac uh, was in the studio recording, and that's when people broke into the studio and like and attempted to sort of assassinate him. So that kind of kicked off that whole West Coast, East Coast, like feud thing. And there's a lot of beefs going around. There's, um, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. But like then in, ni- so that was 1994. In 1995, Tupac was basically spent the entire year, year in jail on sexual assault charges. So basically he like gets out of jail in 1996 and he wants to like record and stuff. But he has so much like anger inside of him. On top of that, in jail, he's been reading Nic- Nicola Machiavelli's The Art of War. You know, it was originally written by Lao Tzu and Machiavelli re- kind right. of re- rewrote it and stuff. It's clear. It's about war strategy. It's about, you know, how to sort of like uh, conquer your enemies and stuff. 
Tupac at this point in 1995-96 is accumulating enemies. (laughs) Not to mention, earlier that year, Dre, who was on Death Row Records, Tupac's label, uh, you know, Suge Knight's label that Tupac was on, Dre left the label in this like blaze of fury. There was like all kinds of relationships broken. Remember, in 1995, Tupac did a California Love with Dre. Big hit. They're buddy buddies. To Live and Die in L.A. is basically like California Love Part 2, except for now it's like Dre's kind of part of the enemy because he left the record label. And I don't know, there's all kinds of other beef about how Dre wouldn't testify at Snoop Dogg's trial and Tupac thought that was like garbage or something like that. I don't want to talk about beef this entire time, (laughs) but that's basically what the record is. The song right before this, which was actually the first single off the record called Toss It Up, the entire song is a Dre diss song. Um, in fact, they even use Dre's like old beat from No Diggity that he was making for Blackstreet mm. when Blackstreet and Dre were on death row. And then Dre left, took Blackstreet off of the label, took that song off and then re-released, released it with some other label, whatever. And so death row is like, all right, whatever. We're going to use the original tracks from your thing on Tupac's record. I don't know what about the the recording session in August kind of leaked out and stuff uh, by September, but there's maybe reason to suspect that like some of this stuff, which is like really aggressive on that on that record, um, maybe leaked out and got into the wrong hands and just escalated to a different level, and could be the reason why someone actually kind of went and, and and shot Tupac. Remember, we still don't know who who, who was so. You know, it, it kind of ripples out, but I think one interesting thing, and I do want to actually talk about the rumors of Tupac faking his own death because it gets tied into the mythology of this it's, album. Yeah. You know, as far as like the alter ego goes, like there's definitely a departure here. Like Tupac is like this poetic lyricist. He's talking about cultural issues. He's talking about all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. He's sort of twisting words and he's got, um, yeah, he talks about a lot of like racial societal issues and current events and stuff like that. Um, in his previous records, but he's also sort of like funky and joyous and he's bringing communities together. Mm-hmm. This record is like, it's like scorched earth, like aggressive. And the entire album it's is furious, like, yeah. there's like shotguns being fired all over the album. And, and there's like the whole things about basically gang violence and, and stuff like that. And it's like, did Tupac like predict his own death or did he just like, it, it's crazy. So yeah, he kind of had to step into an alternate persona, I think, in order to deliver this material because it's just really intense. This record feels like had he survived and and lived on and and had a, a longer career, like this would be one that stands out as like, whoa, yeah, that like just like you said, that's a detour, and he would have gotten back. Right. It does seem like after prison, after like like the crazy beefs, West Coast, East Coast, this just was had to cathartic, get maybe for him. Exactly, like I need to mm-hmm. do this. And then I'll get back to probably what I'm I'm known for, um, just because he yeah he's so good at it. There's evidence to suggest that that was kind of in the cards. I think there's like old interviews or something with like people at Death Row and Suge Knight or whatever who kind of uh, 
like reference the fact that maybe this was just like a side project and they were just going to like mm. leak it underground or something like that. But the problem is he dies. It becomes his sort of like last stand. And therefore it's like really hard to kind of separate this from it just being his like, you know, pinnacle ultimate, like last sort of statement on, on this earth. Um, one, one thing musically, uh, do you know what the, the sample is or at least the influence of it? Cause I don't know if it's a direct no sample. sample. That's no. right. It, but it, it's not a sample, but it is taken from and played uh, the Prince track, um, Do Me Baby. Do Me Baby was part of the part of the sort of Prep preparation of this material, but th- it is an original beat that was made by. Oh, this is interesting. It was made by Quincy Jones's son. Uh, Sick. Oh. QD3. It's the only track that QD3. Uh, produced on the record so basically what happened is uh qd3 is playing a bunch of like old soul records and stuff like that maybe the prince record came up or something uh to tupac tupac found a song that he liked and then said all right can you go can you make me a beat in style so qd3 whipped something up Mm. or whatever and then came back like later that night to the studio played it for Pac three times Pac goes into the vocal booth he lays this song down in in one take across three different tracks so he does three essentially three takes but one take of each part of each verse yeah. and then and walks out that's it then he goes and he tells val, uh, val young who's doing the backup singer uh, backup singing okay here here this is what i want for the chorus just go in and sing it she nails it in like one or two takes and then goes to the multi-instrumentalist or whatever like the session musician who's mm-hmm. just hanging around the session um from death row and he goes in and he just like redoes QD3's instruments on keyboard and guitar in like one or two takes or whatever. Just nails it. The entire Jeez. song done in two hours. Okay, I, I just really have to bring up the the rumors. Okay, of so you got the you got the rumors that Tupac never died, um, or the, rather, it's a conspiracy theory that Tupac never died. He got smuggled to Cuba. Um, where did these come from? These directly come from this album being being put out under the name Machiavelli. There's like a few sort of like bogus claims that don't really add up. Like there's like. There's like a claim about how the guy that cremated Tupac like retired and disappeared immediately after or something. And it's like, wow, why did that happen? Whatever. So there's some like some some weird claims and stuff. But there's three that are kind of like are that that kind of get like interestingly brought back to like the Machiavelli um alias. And the first one is when you re- rearrange the letters of Machiavelli as Tupac spells it, um, you can spell Oh yeah. M alive, K. <laughs> <laughs> the k is the best like k. m alive k, k. like like <laughs> wait so are they spelling the k with this oh 
What? Just he spells it. Machiavelli di- in and, in this yeah. very differently. It's oh right, like, right, yeah, right, 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 yeah. right. Of course. So the M-A-K-A-B. other another thing yeah. is uh, inside the album liner notes. Uh, it reads <laughs> "Exit Tupac, Enter Machiavelli." So it's kind of like this, like second coming kind of thing. Yeah. The, I mean, oh, the album art features Tupac like on a crucifix. So they're like lean. I think the label kind of is like leaning into this like notion. But um, here's the third thing. Okay. People were saying how like Niccolo Machiavelli in The Art of War, he advocates to fake one's own death at age 25 Does and then he? to return what? 18 years later when nobody expects to like resume power. And this whole thing is like a way to sort of sneakily get revenge on your enemies. Tupac died when he was 25 <laughs> years old. He got shot when he was 25 years old. Right. And so 18 years later would have been 2014. Um that never happened. He never. He never came back. So <laughs> maybe he did. Maybe he's someone, and you don't. He might he be still be else now. So yeah. to live and die in L.A. is a was also a, a book. It was like a sort of spy thriller. You kind of or not spy, but a, yeah. yeah, government conspiracy kind of book. Whatever from 1984, uh, 85. It was turned into a movie. Wang starring Chung, Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe and a couple other people actually. It was like not that bad of a cast. Um, Wang Chung. <laughs> did the soundtrack to it. You should play like a clip of Wang Chung's theme song to To Live and Die in LA called To Live and Die in LA. To live and die in LA. I wonder why we waste our lives. Pretty much there's no relation <laughs> there. Um I think Tupac <laughs> I think Tupac just kind of grabbed that that phrase zeology mm-hmm. or whatever yeah. and used it, but um he definitely made it more famous than the film or Wang Chung ever could. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, whatever, you know, there's not, not much more <laughs> to talk about. I mean, it's like, it's just great. I love it. I, I feel like I grew up with all eyes on me, like the, mm-hmm. the, the Tupac record, but I never knew that to live and die in LA. And um, I don't know, a couple other tracks off that album that are pretty classic. Um, I, I don't think I ever knew that that wasn't just Tupac under his yeah. own name. Like they're pretty well integrated, but if yeah. you really listen to this record, like from start to finish, actually it's like a huge departure. So yeah, it leans into the alter ego thing for sure. Totally. Awesome. I'm glad that you went down this conspiracy rabbit hole. <laughs> How can you not? <laughs> so, at, speaking of which. Oh man, I don't even know where to <laughs> What are we listening to, to Carter? <laughs> we are listening to Snow in July by Chris Gaines, aka Garth Brooks. Garth, I which I didn't know his actual first name is Troyal. Troyal Garth Brooks. What? Which Troyal yeah, Brooks right? is a sick name. Was he that born is under a, a bridge? <laughs> Troyal Garth Brooks. I'm I'm not nearly as big a Garth Brooks fan as you are because. Oh, wait, whoa. <laughs> Seconded. But like, Seconded. But, but, I feel like I'm more of a Chris Gaines fan than a Garth Brooks fan at this point. Um, oh, but man. like, but I, I actually, I, I've listened to so little Garth Brooks. I, I want to like country. I'm going to say this. I know it's like, oh, nobody likes country. I, I 
<laughs> I want to like country. And when I hear a really good country song, I like Jolene is an amazing song. You know, like there are some Absolutely. that get me. Not very familiar with Garth Brooks's music, though. This still kind of feels like a like it feels like a country musician doing what they are calling rock to me. Does this feel like Garth Brooks to you? Is it like is this actually a big departure? This this song to me feels like a departure from for Garth. The record itself definitely like there are tracks where you're like this is just a Garth Brooks song. It ain't for bad, but it's for good. Here's a mind-blowing fact for you. In 1999, this record hit number two on the Billboard Top 200. This fake record for a, from a fake that's, artist yeah, that's hit number two. Can you guess what number one was? Do you guys remember? 1999. This oh, this can take you back. <laughs> Backstreet's back. TLC. Nope. No. This was number two to Creed's Human oh, Clay. Seriously? <laughs> the state of the state of the state. music back. <laughs> Let's get right into the, the basic facts of Chris cool. Gaines. So this is where it gets so good. So this record was, again, somehow, I mean, it was produced by the legendary Don Was. Like, got to get that out there. Uh, Don Was having worked with Elton John, Bob Dylan, John Mayer. He's currently the president of Blue Note Records. The big reason why this album exists was uh, the album was written to set the stage for the movie The Lamb, in which Garth Brooks plays rock star Chris Gaines. Garth Brooks wrote oh, this screenplay. For the lamb. And okay. I the biggest thing I have to get across here is I'm sure some things I'm gonna say and have already said will sound pretty snarky. But he tried something here. He really, really yeah. went for something in a huge way. And I think that that absolutely has to be at least a little bit applauded. So the record came out a year before the movie was supposed to, which doesn't feel like nearly enough runtime, but like it never got made. The movie never got made. Mm. This this project did fail. But here's the thing. Yeah, define fail. There were so many, so many gems that came out of the world of Chris Gaines. We well, have not bad music. I'm gonna no. I'm saying that it's not the worst music. Not at all. This track, Snow in July, is absolutely slamming. And we'll get into the things that I, I love about this. When I put this record on, I was expecting to not like it at all. This track has some pretty pretty sick like <laughs> elements to it. I'd say I met my expectations when you said this is what it's going to be. It was them that. Wait, so but but I am curious because like if he had all of this in him, you know, there's mm -hmm. there are artists out there who you know, start off in one genre with one persona mm -hmm. and maybe it doesn't work and they try something else and it um does. You know, like like oh, I I just blanked it. I I can't believe I'm blanking on his name again. Carter Who's the guy whose name starts with M, whose name I blank on, who used to be like a kind of country-ish folk singer and is now like, like we couldn't see him at Coachella because the crowd was too big. Why am I blanking on his name again? Oh my God. So Post Malone. Yes. Oh my gosh. Why do I always forget the name Post Malone? But like, you know, like, like I sometimes wonder, like, is that the thing that worked for Post Malone? So it's what he does. Like, does he, is there a part of him that still wants to be this other thing that he was doing first? I... I kind of got this feeling that it was like 
Garth was just in a really good creative period and he was writing a lot of music and some of that stuff was just like not going to make it mm. on mm. the country record. So he's like, yeah. how could I use this? Well, and then like, this it is just what spiraled out of control. Well, here's the, the thing in that, so. the, the whole poke in that is that Garth doesn't write his own songs. Doesn't at all. And Chris oh. Gaines, here's the other thing. The other thing that blows your mind, Chris Gaines didn't write his own songs, but he has to, Garth has to write from, the, and there are album liner notes, like these are where the, the songs come from and everything like that, which I will actually read the album liner notes from Snow in July. So this is what Chris Gaines, this is what, sorry, this is what Garth Brooks as Chris Gaines has to say about a fictional song that neither of them actually wrote. So let, let the record show that <laughs> Carter is not looking online here. He is waving around. Oh, yeah, yeah. A copy, yeah, a hard copy. One of I don't know how many copies he owns of Chris Gaines's liner investment booklet. (laughs) It's an investment. I had money in Dogecoin. I took it out and I've invested (laughs) it in Chris Gaines, the the life of Chris Gaines. So here's what Chris Gaines has to say about Snow in July. Snow is a gift. When you come out of a good relationship gone bad, it almost always produces a song from within. Snow is one of those songs, but in a different way. It allows me to still feel the anger and surprise, but in a grooving way. (laughs) It makes me be all right with the sting of that relationship. So this is a fictional person talking about a fictional song that Garth Brooks didn't write. So So when he says he's not talking about like snow, he's talking about the song and he's given the song a nickname because none of what you I read guess man yeah snow, snow 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 well he me. says snow was a gift and that's him is it in knowing that like yeah it is and and okay, so that's so like of course everybody knows this song that's like yeah, real so but the also song not is a gift. You know. he's not saying frozen water yeah. from the sky is a gift. sorry yeah you're yeah, absolutely <laughs> Creating the gain, what I'm calling the gains verse, which is the, these are things that that Garth Brooks as Chris Gaines had happen to yeah. create a world in which Chris Gaines could exist enough to where the movie The Lamb would make sense. So we got ourselves a very fake but very real in a way VH1 behind the music special on the life of Chris Gaines. If you haven't seen it. I watched it years ago when it was on YouTube. It has been pulled from YouTube, but you can still find it, folks, which I have a clip for you both right now. His world tours were renowned for their outrageous antics. I remember going over to Chris's house. He was packing and he was packing a chainsaw on his back. There was a chainsaw on tour. Yes, there was. (laughs) All right. What? So Chris Gaines in his former life. Oh, wait, wait, hold on. There's so much, by the way. It was like Chris Gaines was like a a rock star sex addict or whatever. And he got into a car accident and he was horribly disfigured and stuff like that. And then he got surgery and then he rehabilitated himself and got on stage to the, you know, the joy of billions and billions of people around the world. Yeah. And now he's bringing chainsaws around on tour. It's like, it doesn't stop. Also part of Chris Gaines' motivation, he was Australian. His dad was, this is all fake. This is all made up. His dad was an Olympic swim coach and his mother was on the Australian Olympic swim team. His dad wanted Chris to be a swimmer, but Chris rebuffed his his needs of him becoming an athlete, decided to pursue music. His first group uh, was called Crush. Uh, in high school, they recorded first, uh, Crush's first record, which which gave us this gem, My Love Tells Me So. 
We've got the VH1 behind the music. We also had a very live special on NBC, which in between Garth Brooks performing tracks as Chris Gaines gave you Did You Know quotes and facts like this. Did you know Chris was almost killed in a violent car crash in 1992? Chris spent the next two years undergoing extensive plastic surgery on his face, shoulder, and hands. So just like Jeremy said, We're, he's he's got a it's he's like a superhero. Like he needs he's, he needs like an origin story to like like a, to rise through the ashes like a phoenix. It's so gigantic though. It's enormous. Well, and, and there's there's more though. There is okay. more. Garth hosted Garth hosted Saturday Night Live in 1999, and he performed as the musical guest, Chris Gaines, and nobody was, like, the cast, I think, of Saturday Night Live knew this, because there is a sketch of Tracy Morgan being like, oh, that, that guy that performed music sucks, but I really like you, Garth. Time. Thanks, Tracy. Hey, yo, don't shine me on. I'm talking about the OJs, baby. They better than that guy you got this week. Talking about Chris Gaines? Yeah, that lame-ass trick. <laughs> He don't show up to rehearsals all week, then he's strutting around here in that crazy-ass suit, man. Who do you think he is? Okay, for artists that go into alter egos in general, uh, Garth Brooks included, and Tupac, and Cannibal Adderley, and David Bowie, um, and Prince. And Nora Jones. And Nora Jones. <laughs> like, like, are, is it, okay, is it escaping? Or is it trying to sort of try on a new pair of shoes or whatever? Or is it like... This is the true them that they actually feel more like mm. this person, and they want to kind of occupy that soul and that body for a little bit. Like, you probably don't want to disappoint fans, but like yeah. as a human, it's your nature to want to evolve. As an artist, it's your nature to want to evolve. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's but what it is. I I can't get inside the the mind of Chris Gaines. We don't have the I mean, the, technology, the mind of but Troil, I do. Troil Brooks, <laughs> Troil, which is still I I'd say that's a fantastic name. Troil Brooks, I would I would buy that record. So mm. I do. I want to step back. I want to get into the song a little bit because I can't just have my yes, section be sorry. like, oh, Chris Gaines is like craziest shit ever, which it is. It absolutely is. But the song itself, again is slamming like it's absolutely it's slamming so totally reminds me of bill weathers uh use yeah, yeah. me just just like Whoa. the like got that it's kind of funk. not nearly as as soulful and funky like there there is some funk to this track for sure it's kind of like a bruce um, hornsby style like kind of yeah or yacht rocky like doobie well, brothers yeah. kind of thing you know the the guitar solo is pure yacht rock which here it is One seven to four seven, very soulful. There's a lot like this track is fantastic. It's got like a, the hook. It gets a lot darker. Which the best part about this track is the hook. And listen to the hit on beat two. This is this is dope. Like can't knock it. Independence 
Oh man, like solid track. May you mentioned like I don't have. I think he said I was a huge Garth Brooks fan or something. Yeah, I don't I just think kidding. that I am. I was just kidding. But I do remember seeing uh, that there's that that record of I know what the name of the record is now because I looked it up. But like of him with a dark blue and black striped shirt and a black cowboy hat. I think I remember like that early nineties. Yeah. The name of the record is Rope in the Wind. Um, it had the uh, what a the thunder thought, rolls. Though. I want to make fun of that out of can't. Um, uh, Thunder Rolls, I think was was the name of the track. Thunder I just rem- like my parents played the hell out of this record, and on yeah, like Alberta. long, and on long drives through Alberta, often to Saskatchewan, where it's incredibly flat, and just the prairies. We'd be listening to beautiful that record, Rope in the Wind. So look, incredible that's like performer. Ca- that's the catch a wave upon the sand. Like that's the Garth Brooks version of that, and. That's kind of beautiful. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I I think I broke my brain going through this, guys. I that's that's all the gains I have for you. Are there any, the are any other thoughts that you have? Well, on this track well, on you, Chris, I don't Gaines, feel like his like, performance changes in this persona, which is mm, interesting. The, like, the, like I don't think his voice mm, sounds that different. The music there, underneath it, maybe, it? but not the voice. Sure. Yeah. Like know. he doesn't yeah. feel. Does, I, 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 like does. Because there's video footage, presumably, from these yep. VH1 things. Does he have different mannerisms when he's singing than Garth Brooks? Um, maybe a little bit. There's, there's, it seems to be a leather jacket always, always involved. But I, I would say on this track, I, I would say that he, he kind of gets that soul and, and rock vibe down. There's a little very short slapback delay in the verses. It sounds great, too. And I think but he's again, like leaning into that a little bit. Like, is he pronouncing things differently? Is he putting more air anywhere? Like, is it a different part of his range? I ask because, again, you are such a. I think there's less fan. twang. I think there's less twang for less sure. Twang. In in okay. in this in this song, then I love this song. I, oh, yeah, yeah. I can't believe I've said it does, that. It has, I, I don't know if I love this song. Brothers but feel now that I'm now that you're mentioning that. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us yeah. on this this wild, wild episode. episode. Um, I liked it. I, you were we were talking a little bit about the new Sontag stuff though before we yeah. went live on this episode. What's going on with you musically, man? What do you got coming up? Yeah, well, as of the taping today was the was uh, the day that we dropped the new single. So my band Sontag Shogun has a new record coming out. Um, and in a lot of ways, we've never done anything like this. One of which uh, is that half the lyrics on the album are sung in Finnish. That's awesome. Um, it's a it's a collaborative record with a Finnish singer and songwriter and composer named Launau. Her name is Laura Naukarinen. And um, she sings in Finnish and my bandmate sings in English. So there's like a little bit of a duet thing going on. But um yeah, it's coming out in April, but the pre-orders start today, and we just dropped a new single. So that's Sontag Shogun and Lao Now, um, and the single and the album are both called Valo Sirotu, which in Finnish translates to "The Light Is Scattered." You're gonna say the life of Chris King. The, yes. no, the, the lamb. Scattered. The no, lamb. Yeah. <laughs> the seven day theory. Oh my god. 
And that's going to do it for this episode of Themes and Variation. Thank you so much for listening. We want to know your favorite alter ego song. So as always, there's a link to a Spotify community playlist in our show notes. Feel free to add your selections there. Drop us a line at podcast at soundfly.com with any theme suggestions, questions, or comments about the show. And please feel free to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to visit soundfly.com for all of your music learning needs. Thanks again to Jeremy Young for jumping in on this episode. And as a special treat, we're going to play this one out with a snippet from the brand new Sontag Shogun single, Valu Sirotu. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode and a new theme. Oh, oh, oh.